All right, so some background. The churches in Galatia had begun to believe a false doctrine. And so Paul began in his letter in chapter 1, verse 6, saying, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who calls you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. The whole letter of Galatians was written to refute that false gospel. And it was being promoted by a group of people known as the Judaizers. The Judaizers taught that faith in Jesus Christ wasn't enough. They would claim they believed in Jesus. They were Jews who believed in Jesus as the Messiah, but that wasn't enough for them. You had to also be a Jew. You had to convert to Judaism. You had to not only be circumcised if you were a male, but follow all of the law, all of the customs. These were known as Judaizers. Now, this false gospel applied to both men and women. They would often summarize it by saying, you must be circumcised, and obviously that applies to men only in this culture. But this term, circumcision, referred to a lot more than just the physical act of being circumcised. It referred to the Jewish faith as a whole. It was their whole mentality, their whole way of life. In fact, the Jews would refer to themselves as being of the circumcision, and the Gentiles were the uncircumcision. So that became just a, a phrase that represented all of who they were in this Jewish Old Testament law, all the laws, all the customs, all the feasts, everything they were required to do. So you had the situation that we saw in Acts where Paul begins, I'm sorry, Judaizers taught that faith in Jesus Christ for salvation was not enough. And so you had the situation where the apostles and others began traveling all over the place outside of Jerusalem, outside of Israel, and preaching the gospel, and many were getting saved in all over the place. And these people had no background with Judaism. They were just pagan, they had other religions, and they were taught the basic gospel. The basic gospel of there's a God, He created you, but you sinned, that separated you from God. Because of that, you're going to be in hell for eternity unless you repent and believe. And they were believing and getting saved. And then along come these Judaizers and say, that's not enough. Now you've got to go back and become a Jew. Which, which you know, imagine that. Imagine suddenly being bombarded with, and now you've got to follow this festival and this law. You've got to do this thing. You've got to, do that. You've got to get circumcised. I've got to what? And so um, it was very challenging, but it was a false gospel. This teaching of Judaizers, even though they professed faith in Jesus, had a false gospel. And so Galatians was written to refute that. False gospels, just so you know, are nothing to play around with. They must be dealt with. And Paul opposes this false gospel very aggressively in this letter. We saw it in the text we read today. We've seen it before in this letter. He does with it very probably the most aggressive way he begins this letter, Galatians 1, verse 8. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a different gospel than what we've already preached, he's accursed. And he repeats that in verse 9. So it's interesting you think of, for example, Joseph Smith, who claims that an angel gave him another gospel, another testament of Jesus Christ. And... Um, Paul's here saying in the Bible, even if an angel, they're accursed. Because Christ gave the apostles the real gospel. The true gospel says that salvation is free. You cannot earn it, and you cannot lose it. That's the true gospel. It's a free gift, and all we have to do is have faith in Jesus Christ. 
It's entirely free to us. That's the gospel. So if anybody believes that you have to earn your salvation or you've got to do something to convince God to forgive you of your sin or convince God that you're good enough to come into heaven, that's a false gospel, and Paul handles that aggressively, as should we. And so back to the current verse, in verses 2 and verse 3. I hope you can see now that Paul, when he's saying, you know, if, you're, if you receive circumcision, Christ is of no benefit to you. He's not just saying, if you've been circumcised in the flesh, that now you can't be saved. Also, this term, um, if you receive circumcision, is interesting. Um, many translations say, if you get circumcised, if you become circumcised. But there is a word there, received, or the ESV says, if you accept circumcision. And the idea behind it, I like, is uh, the New Living Translation says, if you are counting on circumcision to make you right with God, that's what Paul's getting at. If you're counting on, and again, not just circumcision, but if you're counting on the law, if you're counting on obedience to all the Old Testament laws, if you're counting on your own works, in other words, to make you right with God, then Christ is of no benefit to you. It's a harsh, serious statement. You can't have it both ways. You can either accept the free gift of salvation by faith, or you can try to earn it, but you can't have it both ways. So Paul's saying, if you're trying to earn it, all that Christ did will be of no benefit to you. And then he says, um, not only that, but if you are relying on the Old Testament, relying on your good works, then you're under obligation to keep the whole law. At the end of verse 3. What's the problem with that? Let's say someone says to you, oh, you think you can earn your salvation by good works? Well, that's the case. Then you're going to have to be perfect forever and never sin. What's the problem with that? We are sinners and we always will sin. Right. Are you able to obey God's law perfectly? No. No one is. Right? That's a big problem. In Romans 3, when we studied that, Paul goes into how not only like it's Gentiles and Jews, everybody was, there's no one righteous. No, not one. None of us could keep the law perfectly. That's why in James 2, verse 10, it says that if you try to keep the whole law, but you stumble in one area, you're guilty of all of it. Even if you began this day to be obedient for the rest of your life, it wouldn't take away your past sins if you were relying on your works. So you need salvation by faith in Christ. And you can't have it both ways. You can't have that and then think works are going to get you there. So then verse 4, you've been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by the law. So again, harsh words. And you know these other religions that teach you that you must earn salvation in some way, they're severed from Christ. And so even if there's religions who claim to believe in Jesus but they teach that you have to do this and you've got to do that, you've got to do this. Now, this could even be a mentality. You might even think in your own mind that if I don't go to church every Sunday and give my 10% tithe and if I don't volunteer in some way at the church, then maybe I'm not saved. And that could be a dangerous area for you because those things don't save you. Those might be evidence that you are saved, but those things don't save you. Then verse 5, For we, through the Spirit... By faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. So true faith does not depend on good works. It hopes instead in righteousness, which is given freely to those who put faith in Christ. So earlier in Galatians, Paul talked about how even Abraham 
before he ever obeyed, had faith. And that faith was accounted to him as righteousness. And so Paul was demonstrating that even in the Old Covenant, even the Old Testament, when God gave the law, even then, it was not the obedience of the law that would make you righteous. It was in your recognition that you can't do it and your hope of a future promise that God gave to Abraham. It was that hope that made you righteous. And so Paul is, again, using that same term here. We, through the Spirit, are by faith waiting for the hope of righteousness. So in Christ, circumcision doesn't have any spiritual value. It doesn't earn us anything. Faith is what matters. And I like how this verse says, faith working through love. Because works do matter to God. It's not like you can say you believe one day and now you're saved and God doesn't care how you live your life. Works do matter, but not for salvation. We are not saved by our works, but if you have true faith, our life will reflect that. And so some say, hey, faith just works. And it's kind of a silly phrase, but it means two things. On the one hand, faith is effective. It's sufficient for salvation, but it also works. Faith will work. If you have faith, it will produce works. So James 2.17, faith without works is dead. The idea that, yes, you're saved by faith. But once you have faith, if you don't have any works... Maybe you don't have faith because real faith will result in you living the kind of life that God expects you to live. So no one with real faith doesn't also seek to live for God. And we know it's a journey. We all struggle. But again, at least acknowledge that if you have real faith, you're going to notice in yourself a desire to live for Him and to make progress and to become a better person for Him, love Him more, love others more. So in verse 7, you were running so well, who hindered you from obeying the truth? So they were running well. And this is why last week we read how he was saying that he, he eagerly desires to see them again close to Christ like they used to be. You know, we can all go astray, every one of us. We can get into some wrong teaching. <clears throat> we can b- begin to believe wrong things that can lead us to do bad behaviors. And then we can come back to Christ. The doors never close, even if you're severed from Christ or fallen from grace, like these verses say, because you believed for a minute that you had to earn your salvation. You can come right back, and Paul has confidence that they will. He says in verse 10, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view. And then he says, um, a little leaven, leaven is a whole lump in verse 9. So leaven is what makes bread fluffy. And and there, there's this idea, and they'd often use it in referring to sin, that it doesn't matter where you put the leaven in, it's going to cause the whole lump, the loaf to, to grow, right? And so, same thing with sin. You can't, like, compartmentalize part of your life and allow sin there, but over here on Sundays you're good, because, again, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And I say leaven, maybe you say leaven, maybe you say lavin, I don't know, but I say leaven. But here he's talking about this false teaching in the church, and again, the point he's making is don't tolerate it in your church. Don't allow this false teaching in your church. Don't allow people to exist in your church that believe that you're saved by works. It's not, even, it's not just a, a misinformed gospel. It's a different gospel. It's a false gospel. It can't lead to salvation. Then verse 11 and 12, and he says, But if I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. So Paul's saying in the first in verse eleven, it'd be so much easier if I just preached what the Judaizers preached. I wouldn't be persecuted anymore. 
I mean, they, the, the, the problem they have with me, being Paul, I used to be a Pharisee, I used to be a Jew, and now I'm saying those things don't matter. What matters is faith in Christ. That offends the Jews, so they're persecuting me. It would be much easier if I just went along with them and said to you, yeah, become a Jew. So the fact that he's not doing that, resulting in personal harm to himself, means it really matters. And then he says again, Paul being aggressive here, I wish those who were troubling you would mutilate themselves. And he's referring to circumcision. But he's using that metaphorically to say, I wish they would cut themselves off from you. That's the idea he's getting at. I want these people gone from your midst. I don't want them harming you with this bad teaching anymore. Side note, if you study righteous anger in the New Testament, whether it's Paul or it's Jesus himself, the moments when Christ gets angry is when leaders are leading sheep astray. It's not all the time. And so when someone gets mad because they were cut off and, well, the guy was running a red light, so I'm justified in being righteously angry. Christ wasn't angry at everything that was wrong in the world. He had tremendous compassion and mercy and grace and love. But for leaders who led others astray, that's where he was angry. That's when he would kick people out of the temple because they were turning worship into a money-making scheme. And he flipped over tables and he used a whip and he kicked them out. It wasn't just for any reason. And no, Jesus wasn't a white guy. It's just a picture I found. So then verse 13, You were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. We are free, but pay attention to what that phrase means. We're not free to sin. We're free from sin. And there's a difference. And some people say, Oh, I'm free in Christ. And then they do whatever they want in their life because they're free in Christ. That isn't what Paul meant. It's not what Christ meant. We're free from the bondage of sin. Like the pilgrim's progress when he carried that burden, right? The wages of sin is death. And he kept repeating that. He was bearing that burden. Now we're free of that. We're not free to do whatever we want in life. We're now slaves to Christ. So we are free. And then he says, Don't turn freedom into an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another. Now, I used to think this meant, just in general, don't turn your freedom into a way of just allowing yourself to sin in whatever way. And that's a good teaching. But if you remember back in Galatians 4.23, Paul spoke about Hagar and Ishmael, and Ishmael being the son of the flesh. And he was mentioning how God gave a promise to Abraham, and Abraham got impatient and tried to fulfill God's promise on his own with Hagar. So Ishmael became the son of the flesh. And what he meant by that was, that was Abraham's way of trying to do things in his own strength, in his own flesh. And so here Paul again uses flesh in this verse. And I think what he's getting at here is saying, you were called to freedom, but now don't go back to doing things your own way. Don't go back to doing things according to the flesh. Don't take the freedom from Christ and now pretend like you've got to earn it when it was given to you freely. That's what I think he's getting at. And then he says, through love, serve one another. It's interesting here that Paul contrasts the law in legalism with love. Do you all remember the definition of legalism from last week? Legalism is when you think you can earn your way to heaven by obeying God's law perfectly on your own. And what's the opposite of legalism? In this passage, it's love. 
So I think it's interesting. He says, don't do this. Don't try to do it in your flesh. But instead, through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You'll love your neighbors yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by one another. So what I want to do now is turn to Matthew chapter 22, because this is where Paul gets his idea from, that, that love fulfills all the law. The whole law is fulfilled in one word, love. If you go to Matthew 22, and we're going to end with a couple more verses, but Matthew 22, starting in verse 34. Matthew 22, starting in verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, You'll love, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Very powerful. On these two commandments depend the whole law and all the prophets. So the Ten Commandments are broken up this way. If you look at the Ten Commandments, you can figure out which ones have more to do with loving God more than everything else and which ones have to do with loving others. You know, like, you shall not steal... Shall not covet. Those are about loving others. No idols. Don't use his name in vain. Those are about loving God. So it breaks up that way. And so Jesus was saying, and Paul repeats it here, that just by loving others and by loving God, you obey all the law. And this is why love is greater. This is why when you focus on loving God and loving others, you don't need to focus as much on being legalistic and like, oh, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. The more we love God, the less we'll sin against Him. And the more we love others, the less we'll sin against them. And this is also how faith works. If we have true faith and we realize what God has done for us, the more we realize it, the more we'll love Him. And the more we love Him, I believe, the more we love others. Because when you love somebody, don't you care about what they care about? And so if you really love God, even if you don't naturally love people, and I include myself in that camp just being honest, I sometimes don't have as much compassion as others would for people. I'm kind of an introvert. I fight against it, but that's just who I am. But the more I love God, the more I begin to love people because He loves people. And if I really love Him, then I should care about what He cares about. And so when I see somebody in need, even if I don't personally have the same amount of compassion as a regular, normal human being would have, if I love God and He has compassion on the needy, then I should have compassion on the needy because I love God so much. So they work together. So love starts with God, and then it filters out to other people. And I love this verse, John 13, 35, one of the core verses for this church. The world will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. When you've got a church that basically looks like a social club consisting of the same kinds of people in the same stage of life, from the same economic status, from the same cultural background. It's harder to represent, especially in the South, that you're really loving the world because it looks like you love those who are just like you. 
And that's hard to hear, but this is why I repeat it so often that I want us as a church to be broader than that. I want us as a church to be loving people from different backgrounds, in different financial classes of life, different, you know, whatever. I, I think that's a better testimony to the world that we're his disciples when we actually have a love that the world can't understand because in the world you wouldn't see this kind of fellowship. So love is greater. Begins with God, number one. Then I would say number two, in the church, in the local fellowship, loving one another. And then number three, in the world. And he says, if you bite and devour one another, take care you're not consumed by one another. And we're going to use this verse again next week. It's kind of a, a connecting verse between two things, so we'll read it again next week. But in this, I'll just say that Paul's saying to them, if you continue to have strife in your church about whether works are needed for salvation, you're going to be consumed. So he's basically saying again, don't allow false teachers to remain in the church. You really can't have unity if you don't agree on this issue. And so in our church, for example, I've often said that I'm Reformed, I'm Calvinistic, I believe in predestination, but I don't require members of the church to believe that. All I require is that we agree together on Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. Whether you think that salvation began with your free choice, and then God says He chose you because He knew you'd choose Him, or whether because you think it began with God choosing you, which gave you the ability to choose Him. Either way, if you can come to this and we can be unified under this, then we're good. By grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, so no one can boast. So again, chicken or the egg, did God choose you? Did you choose God? Whatever you believe, as long as you have a solid foundation of it wasn't me, I didn't earn it, it's not of works, then we're good. It's foundational. And if anybody doesn't believe that, doesn't believe that they're saved by faith only, if they believe works are required, that's not a real gospel. And Paul says that there's no unity there. There's no possibility of unity. But the good news is, we are people of love. God has given us free salvation by faith, and so we can celebrate that. And as we take communion now together, we can celebrate the fact that Christ, the Son of God, fulfilled all of the law for us. He lived a perfect life. He was completely righteous, and then He paid for all of our sins. So now when we put faith in Him, we get His righteousness. God sees us through the righteousness of His Son, and all of our past sins are forgiven.